Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. Every election, millions of Americans don't vote. And these are some of the reasons. Dirty politics. They dislike the candidates. Government is not doing their job. Broken promises. One non-voter says his decision not to participate is really a vote against a system that keeps putting dishonest politicians in office. Getting rid of politicians is like getting rid of a bad disease. It's going to be with you to the doctor come and tell you you're done. From the New England News Collaborative, this is Next. Today we'll look at reasons Americans choose not to vote. Also, how costs would shake out for four New England families if Congress passed Medicare for all. That number could mean that we pay less if the employer pays the same. It could mean that we pay more if the employer pays less. Plus, a new survey finds most rural Vermonters would encourage their kids to move out of state for work. There was, I think, a a sense of real pessimism about the future of the state's economy. It's next. Next is produced at Connecticut Public Radio and is powered by the New England News Collaborative, eight public media companies coming together to tell the story of a changing region with support from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. I'm John Dankosky. Thanks for joining us. In one year, Americans will head to the ballot box to vote in the general election. And today's show is all about New England voters, how they vote, why they vote, if they vote. Nobody follows these stories in the region more closely than James Pindle of the Boston Globe. He joins us from the studios of WBUR to talk about where New Englanders stand right now. James, welcome back to Next. Oh, it's great to be back on. So first of all, let's start with a bit of an overview here. What did New England in the electorate look like back in 2016, and what does it look like right now? Well, in 2016, we still had a region in transition. You know, largely the story of New England is how it has become more in line politically with the dynamics that are happening around the country. New England's not unique in that. The American South is seeing that. The West is certainly seeing that. We are in a moment of major political realignment. We we don't have to get off topic, but we've seen this happen almost every 40 years. It's almost uncanny in American history where the parties uh, shift places or they follow the dynamics of where the voters are. Um, and we are in the middle of that right now. Um, and one of the things we're seeing in from 2016 to now is that nationalization really taking place. So in 2016, for example, um, heading into that election, we had more moderate Republicans uh, in the state legislators, uh, members of Congress. Uh, obviously, Bruce Poliquin in Maine was a classic example of that. Susan Collins was a bigger deal. Uh, just a couple of years before that, we had Olympia Snow, also a, a, a moderate Republican senator from Maine. Uh, but we've seen over time now that this is largely a Democratic region. In fact, there's just one member of Congress of all the 33 uh, that are Republican, and that is Susan Collins of Maine. Uh, so that's one thing that's really changed in the Trump era is the acceleration of how the region has become more nationalized. So do you think that we're losing something by New England becoming more like the rest of the country? Well, of course we are. Uh, you know, the traditions of the stodginess of, oh. of New England, um, there's probably two obvious area, areas where you've seen uh, the most impact. 
first is on fiscal responsibility. Yes, I'm going to talk about that. <laughs> we don't talk about the debt and deficit at all. In fact, it's an assumed bipartisan talking point that it doesn't matter. Uh, but for, for a while, Democrats didn't really want to talk about it. Republicans use it as a talking point. And now under the era of Trump, no one's talking about it at all. And debts and deficit have gone up. That's a sort of a New England town hall tradition to talk about that. The second part is probably more environmental conservation. Um, removing aside the, the threat of climate change, just an overall discussion about what can be done to preserve landscapes and traditions in small towns is something that's probably definitely lost. Uh, Susan Collins, as you mentioned, the only Republican in Congress. But we do have Republicans now running state houses in several states. And why is it that we don't want to send Republicans to Washington to represent us, but we're very happy to have uh, Republicans running things at the state houses all across New England? Well, you know, you're right. We have six states in the New England region. Three are headed by Republican governors. You know, two of them in particular, uh, Phil Scott of Vermont and Charlie Baker of Massachusetts uh, are among the most popular, even Chris Nunu are among the most popular in the country. Charlie Baker, of course, being the most popular, Phil Scott around number three, uh, Chris Nunu of New Hampshire at number five. And one of the reasons uh, that has happened is that in particularly in Scott and in Charlie Baker's case, um, they are not a typical Republican. In fact, one reason why they are seen so positively among their Democratic, largely blue state constituencies is their either expressed or subtle definition of where they stand with Trump, which is not with him um, on most things. They will call him out consistently. Now, good. That's obviously good politics for them. Um, But I think in general, I think uh, a lot of folks, when they talk about a leader of a state, when a largely Democratic legislature, they like the idea of checks and balances. Uh, And then so that's why Republicans do so well, particularly in Massachusetts, where they consistently win. But but you have some Democrats like Ned Lamont in Connecticut, who's just not popular at all. And this is a very, very blue state. That's right. You know, of course, Ned Lamont uh, is, is very unpopular. <laughs> um, his predecessor was extremely unpopular, uh, was for a while the most unpopular uh, governor in America, another Democrat. Well, one of the things that we found most interesting in 2016 was that there was one electoral vote for Donald Trump in New England, and that was the second district in Maine. Was that an indicator of anything other than the second district of Maine is just a very different place? I think it's an indicator, again, of how nationalists our politics have become, not to be a one-note Johnny here. But, yeah. uh, you know, Maine is very fascinating right now, um, where overall the state leans a little bit Democrat. Um, but the state is has two congressional districts that are north and south, which is very Democratic. In fact, Hillary Clinton won the southern district um, by about 15 points. And then the north, where uh, the, the northern congressional district, Trump won by... 11 points. So on the average, the Democrat Hillary Clinton won by something like four. Uh, but they are it's a very much split state uh, between North and South. And they're following again, along with the national themes. You know, it's uh, urban versus rural. Uh, it is um, uh, guns uh, uh, are obviously a major topic, but it's also a cultural thing that's happening. Uh, folks who may be in the second congressional district, they may have more in common with folks in in very Republican districts uh, in the Midwest or somewhere else than they may have with what's happening uh, in New York or Kennebunk. Elsewhere in our program, we're discussing the fact that there are two very high profile New England uh, candidates for president who are both running on 
platforms of Medicare for All. Do you think that this concern about health care amongst voters here is one of the reasons why this has risen to be, if not the top, one of the top issues that uh, Democratic candidates for president are talking about? Before I'm going to answer, that's a very good question. I'm going to point out what we're not talking about among voters. Voters are not bringing up impeachment. Mm. Impeachment is what's clearly on cable news every single day. It is obviously there's a lot of process arguments even in the past week, uh, process things that have happened that have been very, very important. But voters aren't talking about it. When I talk to them, they say, oh, that's just noise. It's politics, whatever. Or, you know, even Democrats who really wanted him, uh, wanted President Trump impeached and removed from office are saying, well, I mean, I doubt it's ever going to happen. So whatever, I'm going to move on to the presidential race in terms of they don't think the Senate's going to remove them. Um, but as for your question about Medicare for all, I mean, I think one thing that's definitely happened um, is that clearly Bernie Sanders is now the intellectual father of the Democratic Party, quite ironic, given that he's not even a member of the Democratic Party, <laughs> technically still an independent. And if we're going to be honest about this, uh, he hails from New England. He could hail from Oregon and have turned things around. I do believe that Vermont obviously allowed someone like him to stay in office and remain in office. He is highly beloved. And for a while, he was the most popular senator in the United States among his own constituents. So, I mean, clearly that certainly helps. But also what helps is that the people you're talking about, Sanders and Warren, come from very blue states that allow them to take positions like this and not face any consequences. That was James Pindle, a reporter for the Boston Globe who covers New England politics. He'll be back a bit later in the show. Do you vote? Yes. I do vote. Occasionally I do. I do vote if I see um, it referent helping. Well, it's my right as a citizen to vote. How are you going to see change if you don't put the right people in or try to get the right people in office, you know? What motivates you when you go vote? Primarily taxes, uh, infrastructure. I vote on things like immigration, taxes. Um, I'm concerned about climate change. Well, what you want to look for is also the uh, future impacts. I wonder what's going to happen with me when I get older, because I always hear, oh, there may not be any more Social Security. There may not be any more pension. Like, my job got rid of pension. If we don't vote, we can't complain, because we didn't try to make a change. So we'd have nothing to say. That was Sydney Young, Rob Gorey, Ashley Jordan, Anna Maria Parsons, Lavina Campbell, Lakina Victor, and Monica Jean Clark. I talk to them on the streets of Hartford, Connecticut, and you'll notice they all make sure to vote. And when it comes to presidential election years, they're actually part of a majority of Americans who do vote. According to the U.S. Elections Project, about 60% of eligible voters cast ballots in the 2016 election. In New England, percentages do vary by state, with Maine and New Hampshire at the high end, with just about 70% casting their ballots, and Rhode Island at the low end, matching the national average. But what about those 30 to 40 percent who don't vote? Good morning. Good morning. Every day when I come into work, I'm greeted by Michael Gilliam Sr. He's the security guard at the front desk of Connecticut Public. He's the one who greets all the guests who walk through the door, including many political figures. Mike engages them in conversation because he cares about politics and what happens in his community. But he describes himself this way. He says, I am not a voting person. It's not because he's apathetic, but he says there's a lot of dishonest politicians. You can't really trust all politicians. So when a person says, I'm going to make a promise and do this, and then for your life, you see most politicians never 
keep their promises. Mike feels like a lot of people just keep casting their ballots without being fully educated about candidates or issues. Listen, people need to make conscious decisions on who we putting in to represent us, our neighborhoods, our communities, our jobs, our schools, and our children. There's a lot of people who go cast the vote just to say, I voted. They don't want to be pointed at as a person who didn't vote. So it's a stigma of you're a person who didn't vote. Ooh, everybody who votes should pay attention to the person they're voting for. We're putting terrible people in office. For Mike, not voting is a vote of sorts. I think when you don't vote, maybe you're part of, they say you're part of the problem, but if everyone is voting for people they don't know, then you're bringing people in office that is the problem. In 2018, the Suffolk University Political Research Center in Boston polled people like Mike who were unlikely to vote. David Paleologos is the director of the center, and he joins us by phone to talk about what they found. David, welcome to Next. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. What do you know about these unlikely voters? What's the breakdown of, of the demographics here? Well, they're disproportionately young, disproportionately minority, and also disabled. And so um, these are people who tend to skew Democratic, but either because they're not registered to vote or they're registered and they're just set up with the system. They don't vote even though they're registered. There are major problems in terms of this big mass of people who are what I call the other America. For those people who, who seem like they're fed up with the system or, or don't believe that, that politics is is for them, what are they telling you? What are some reasons why they don't vote? You know, people say in this poll that they think gridlock is the most important problem. You know, 14 percent said when we asked what, what's the most important problem facing the country, gridlock and the economy were the top two responses. So we know that they're somewhat tuned in. But they're also very much depressed about the future. And when we ask people who weren't registered to vote, what was, you know, what, what's the reason? You know, they were saying stuff like, you know, vote, my vote doesn't count. It won't make a difference. I don't care. I'm apathetic. I'm too busy. Um, and then people who were registered, they were holding back voting for other reasons, They, many of which were information-driven. I'm not familiar with the candidates, 11%, lack of information. Uh, my vote doesn't count, 9%. I'm too busy, and so on. So, you know, you've got a couple of different cuts in terms of reasons. Something that we hear a lot during election seasons from people who do vote and even from some people who don't is that this is a civic duty. And many actual voters say that's the reason that they do vote, because, you know, you, you can't complain if you don't actually cast your ballot. What what do non-voters or unlikely voters think about that? Are, are any of them actually engaged in in that larger civic question about whether or not it's my duty to go out and cast a ballot? It's an interesting question because they are engaged on the one hand, but they still haven't budged in terms of telling us that they're not going to vote. You know, going into this poll, I thought that a lot of people in this survey would be people who don't follow the news. But we asked, you know, the question, would you say you follow what's going on in government and public affairs? Almost two thirds of respondents of non-voters said that they follow what's going on in government and public affairs either most of the time or some of the time. 
So we know that they're engaged, but they're just soured on the whole process of voting, and they're not, um, they're not, they're not enthusiastic, nor are they willing to you know, get off the dime and get out and vote. When we asked what it would take to get you to vote in November, people were saying better candidates, better choices. That was one of the top responses, 12%. Um, some people said after the survey, you know, I think I will go out and vote. But there were other people who basically said, you know, nothing will change. I'm not interested in voting. It, w- it wouldn't take anything. It's not just the quality of the candidates that people are taking into consideration. There's a whole variety of, of political policy positions, different issues that they may care about. How much do you think that it's about the, the people who are running? And how much do you think that it's about the issues that they're talking about or the issues that are in the, uh, I don't know, that in, are in the air in politics at that moment? I think it's more skewed to the issues. We've noticed greater intensity in our polling of likely voters and engagement when there is a particular issue that resonates with people, uh, specifically sexual harassment. We did a a survey uh, last December, um, you know, in in the polling that followed, you know, the Harvey Weinstein and other uh, uh, parts of, of the basically the Me Too movement that began um we found more engagement based on that one issue when there's a school shooting god forbid when we're in the field after that people are very much engaged in talking about gun violence so i think issues um are, are more important than the actual personalities because i mean even when we had you know a transformational president like barack obama in 2008 you still had people who hadn't chosen to vote in 2008. There were 80 million people that year who didn't vote. And then in 2012, when he ran for re-election, there were 90 million people who decided not to vote, who were eligible to vote. And in this past election, 95 million people in the Trump versus Clinton election, 95 million people. So that's the only number that's going up uh, every four years is the number of eligible people who are not voting in the country, Um, whereas the Democratic winner hovers around 65, 66 million, and the Republican candidate hovers in the mid-low 60s. But that number continues to go up. And I believe that 100 million eligible citizens of the U.S. will not vote in 2020. Wow. So that's a big number and that's a a troubling trend line. What do you think gets us back to uh, an era like 2008 in which we have a much larger number of people deciding to vote? Is it is it just about calming some of the divisiveness in in political dialogue these days? I think so. People in the poll are citing the negativity um, and the gridlock. And one wonders whether or not that's a Uh, an underlying strategy of the Republicans and the Republican Party, and specifically of of President Trump, because if the non-voters who are more younger and more minority and, like I say, higher disability, if they vote, that's bad for Republicans because a lot of the non-voters who have just given up are predisposed to vote Democrat if if you made them choose. And so I think it's it's in the interest, uh, whether it's hidden or, uh, or, or defined, 
by the Republicans to, if they can't make the case to, for their own election, to uh, draw a stark contrast and, and, and take a negative posture in politics and hope that the Democrats will, will uh, reciprocate. And it'll be this downward spiraling of negativity, and that'll turn off more voters, and you'll have more people not voting. And I think that works to the advantage of Republicans, at least according to the statistics that we have. I, I hate to leave on such a dour note. I'm wondering if you, if there is anything that gives you hope about uh, about voting in America these days. Well, I think education and civics engagement are important. We've done some work on this. Um, you know, there is a, a void and uh, a demand by parents and teachers and even some state politicians in some of the states that we've polled that civics engagement um, is um, an endorphin that's really positive and that can really um, get people energized and juiced about participating in government. And I think the future is an education. And um, if we focus on that, I think participation will increase. David Logos is the director of Suffolk University's Political Research Center based in Boston. David, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. Coming up, a survey finds some surprising and not so surprising things about rural life in our region. And we'll dig into health care costs with a family considering Medicare for all. It's next. Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the Common Sense Fund, supporting the New England News Collaborative and its coverage of climate change and the evolving clean energy economy. Support also comes from Douglas Stone and Mary Schwab Stone through the Smart Family Foundation of New York. Lots of things can push people to vote, a candidate, a political party, or an issue. Perhaps a more subtle influencer is quality of life. Vermont Public Radio and Vermont Public Television recently surveyed about 800 residents of the Green Mountain State asking a wide range of questions about the challenges and promises of rural life in Vermont. Mark Davis is the assistant news director at VPR, and he joins us to talk about what the survey found. Mark, welcome to Next. Hey, thanks for having me. So why would you focus on rural life in Vermont? Uh, because it seems to be the one issue that overrides all other issues in this state. We spent a lot of time, for example, talking about lack of broadband. Uh, we have rural hospitals that are closing in this state. We're uh, having a debate about closing schools that are losing population. Uh, again and again, we sort of cover these issues that all seem to, at the end of the day, lead back to this one overarching story, which is the changing nature of, of rural Vermont, a lot of struggle in rural Vermont. So we wanted to really go to the, the source um, and, and try to tell that, that big picture story. We also wanted to have some hard numbers on a story that is often told through sort of isolated anecdote. I'm wondering if you were surprised by any of the results, because when I looked through this poll, there were a lot of things that people didn't seem quite as concerned about as, as maybe we would have expected. We had a lot of surprises in this poll that sent us scrambling, frankly. We thought we were going to be telling a lot of stories one way. We ended up telling them another, which is a 
wonderful reminder. Um, for example, I, I mentioned broadband, which has just been topic A in the legislature for as long as I, many, many years now. And we, a lot of concern about people in rural isolated areas not having access to broadband and what that means for the economy, what that means for their community's futures. Um, again, this is a big topic in Vermont. We ask people about it. And 79% of people told us that access to high-speed internet, not such a problem for them. Um, I would have lost a lot of money had I wagered on that one. <laughs> and so we're not quite sure what that means, frankly. Perhaps in a lot of ways it means that uh, government groups and community groups have, have been effective, more effective than we've realized in addressing this problem. Um, I think the, the other huge surprise for us was that we thought we would see a lot of geographic disparity. We thought that people who lived in Chittenden County, where Burlington is, our urban area, would answer questions a lot more differently than sort of the Northeast Kingdom up towards Canada. Um, what we found again and again when we looked at the geographic divides were that the answers were the same. What were some of the questions you asked where you, you had a pretty good idea of how people were going to answer and, and the poll came through where you didn't have any big surprises? <laughs> we asked about the dairy industry in Vermont, which is sort of an iconic um, part of the, the Vermont experience here. We asked how important it was to Vermont's sense of identity. Uh, no surprise, 93% of people uh, said that the dairy industry was, was quite important to Vermont's sense of identity. Uh, sadly, another question that came through about as we expected, uh, we asked people, were you to advise an 18-year-old on whether to leave or stay in Vermont to build a successful life? Uh, the majority went with uh, advising an 18-year-old to leave Vermont. Yeah, it wasn't a surprise to me, but I will say, Mark, there there was some tension between that and some other results in your survey. So w when you asked Vermonters why they stay in the state, the top answer uh, was family at 41 percent. But but here people are saying, you know, family's really important. I love my community. My quality of life is pretty good. But to that 18-year-old, eh, maybe you should go. Yeah, no, it's exactly right that the people uh, gave us a complicated story. 78% of people uh, said the quality of life in their local community was good or excellent. 78%. And, and yet a huge chunk of those exact same people would tell an 18-year-old to leave if they want to be successful. Um, perhaps one can surmise that people are worried about the future. And while they like it now, uh, they are pessimistic about maybe Vermont's economy going forward. So what do you think you took away from this in terms of how Vermonters feel about their own lives and how they feel about the state? And do you think that it's going to tell you anything uh, in particular about how they may vote in these these important elections coming up in the next couple of years? I think there were two huge takeaways, the first of which is uh, the level of education you have attained is a massively important factor uh, on how you're doing and how you view your future. Uh, people who have high school degrees or less are living a far different life and have far different feelings about the future than people with college degrees, which is, you know, perhaps on the surface not stunning. But again, the, the numbers here again and again, it just really hammered home that point. Uh, point number two was that this state may not be as geographically divided as we tend to assume uh, that it is. Uh, there are sort of strong regional identities in Vermont. Um, and yet the answers people were giving really did not change too much depending on where they are. As far as the future, there was, I think, a, a sense of real pessimism about the future of the state's economy. Um, and I, I think to the extent that it already isn't a, a huge topic in the legislature, I, I, it, it has to be more so in the years to come. You, you say that the geographic divide maybe isn't as stark as you would have thought. I, I'm wondering if there's a sense that the respondents of this survey would have responded 
relatively similarly if they lived similar lives in New Hampshire or Maine, other northern New England states that are predominantly rural. It's a great point. And we actually lifted a lot of these questions from a very similar NPR poll that was done nationwide that was looking at sort of rural issues nationally. And our answers were very much in keeping with with the NPR answers. There were very few sort of significant deviations there. And so perhaps what that speaks to is there is just sort of a universal rural experience in America um, that is much the same in New Hampshire and Vermont and, and North Dakota and other places. Mark Davis is assistant news director at VPR. You can go through the entire Vermont Rural Life Survey. We'll have a link at nextnewengland.org. Mark, thanks for talking to us. Thank you. We're going to delve into this VPR PBS survey just a bit more. The poll found that 40 percent of respondents said they would not be able to afford an unplanned expense of $1,000. VPR's Liam Elder Connors spoke to two Vermont families who face precarious financial situations. Every year, Nicole Forgan and her family get their picture taken at the Champlain Valley Fair. In this year's photo, Forgan and her partner Pat sit with their three kids, eight-year-old Bryce and the three-year-old twins, Liliana and Zachary. Liliana runs over as her mom takes the picture off the wall and starts naming everyone. Bryce, Zachary, Liliana. It's Mama, Daddy. Forgan <laughs> smiles at her daughter and shoes away Daddy, Cooper, hi. one of the family's daughters. Weekends are busy for Forgan, who's 38 and lives in Milton. There are chores to do and errands to run. The house is filled with boisterous energy as three kids plus two dogs run around, laughing and playing. The weekends are the only time Forgan gets to see her partner, Pat. The two have opposite schedules during the week. I get up in the morning um, and I go to work. Uh, The kids are still sleeping. Uh, Pat puts um, Bryce on the bus and takes care of the kids till about 1.30. Then his parents come over, um, watches them till 3 o'clock. Then I take over from there and um, he goes to his job. So And he usually gets home around around 11.30. Forgan works with kids who have behavioral issues and Pat is a custodian. Together, they bring home about $62,000 a year. Forgan says money is tight. Well, prioritize, I make sure that the kids have food. That's my number one main goal, that they have what they need. And then whatever is left over, then we pay for bills or mortgage or whatever. It's sad that we have to go that far. I would love to save, but there's no saving when you have to do that. Forgan says she's lucky to have family nearby who help watch the kids and loan them money. But still, being in such a shaky financial situation is unsettling, and Forgan knows she's not alone. I am not the only hurting one, and it's sad to know that we're hurting this much and they're not paying attention. And I hate to say that I'm poor, but I am. (laughs) It sucks. (laughs) A new VPR Vermont PBS survey helps illuminate the scale of financial insecurity that Forgan and others face. According to the survey, 40% of respondents said they wouldn't be able to cover an unexpected $1,000 expense. That number is not surprising to Ellen Kaler, the executive director of the Vermont Sustainable Jobs Fund. Kaler says wages in Vermont have been flat for years. The pace to what our costs are increasing is higher than what we're gaining in new wages, especially at the low and moderate income levels. So there's a mismatch there between earnings and expenses. As basic living costs like housing, transportation, and childcare increase, Kaler says it's tough to save money. If you're a single person 
living with another single person, you probably can do okay. But if you're a single parent with one or two kids, you're spending with one child in childcare, for instance, full time, you're spending almost $240 a week just on childcare. So there are these hard costs that we have in our lives that we need to have. Another problem is the so-called benefits cliff, where people make too much to qualify for federal assistance programs like food stamps. That's the case for Michael Courier. He and his wife are both on disability. Courier also works part-time as a housekeeper at an assisted living facility. Altogether, the disability checks and part-time salary mean Courier and his wife earn too much to qualify for food stamps. We're good, but we get by. That's about it. By the end of the month, we're lucky if we have about $100 left. Courier's 58 years old and lived in St. Albans his entire life. He's sitting in a big red armchair while his wife Lynn sits on the nearby couch. At least half a dozen pictures of the couple hang on the walls around the living room. We, we basically, we've always been together. And um, while we're our own company, just our own company with each other. I mean, we've been together for 40 years. Courier worked as a custodian at local schools until about seven years ago. He had to stop working full-time due to nerve damage in his hands. And so you can see where I wore it out. He holds up his right hand, where, under his thumb, it looks like part of his hand got scooped out. All that's gone. That's from running those big, heavy machines. I did floors. Courier says he and his wife need a car to get to medical appointments. He didn't want to get one that was too cheap because he needed it to be safe and reliable. And he laments that it seems like everything today, from housing to food, is more expensive than it used to be. We go and we spend $300 on groceries, and I'm walking out of the store with a less than a cart full. When we first got married, I walked out of there with about three carts full. Courier says he and his wife will get by, as they always have. But he doesn't think their situation will improve. As far as getting enough money to live in this in this part of the state, I'd say no. I'm not very optimistic about any of those things changing. Unless we can get somebody down in Montpelier that's going to start doing more. And for right the, now they're just trying to please the taxpayers, the the ones that are going to vote. Uh, yeah, we're, we're, but um, we're born again, so I just pray for the Lord to come soon because it's not getting any better. It's getting worse. Nicole Forgan from Milton tries to be optimistic about her situation. For example, she says when their heater broke, she was grateful it didn't happen in the winter. We didn't have to worry about um, sheltering in a hotel somewhere. We didn't have to shelter at my parents' house. Um, It could have been a lot worse. It's tough to stay positive, Forgan says. She believes there's light at the end of the tunnel. But she says that tunnel keeps getting longer. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Liam Elder Connors. One of the biggest reasons people face unexpected expenses is health care. A sudden doctor's visit or ambulance ride can be financially crippling, whether you live in rural Vermont or greater Boston. That's why the idea of Medicare for All is getting a lot of attention in the 2020 presidential race, especially from two New England candidates, Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders. But there's very little information about what these plans would mean for you and your neighbors. So today, we'll take a look at one issue, individual costs. WBUR's Martha Biebinger begins our story at a dining room table in Brookline, Massachusetts. Is it zucchini plant? This is the pumpkin. Oh, pumpkin, sorry. Yes, that's okay. They ran out of the zucchini, which also... Bonnie Gilbert has put out a spread as we sit down with her husband, Yuval, to compare what the Gilberts spend on health care now with what they might spend under Medicare for All. The Gilberts have a family plan that includes two children. Yuval says the bills add up. 
usually one big event per year where we have a big expense. Like an overnight evaluation for Bonnie when she experienced chest pain. With kids, uh, you know, we will end up in an emergency room at some point during a year, and that is an automatic $500 out of pocket. Adding payments to therapists who only take cash, prescriptions, and their monthly health insurance premiums, the Gilberts spent $19,000 on health care last year. When the Gilberts include what Bonnie's employer paid toward the family plan, the total is $33,000. Bonnie scans the numbers Yuval pulled onto a spreadsheet. So that includes the employer's share and everything that we pay out of pocket, yep. including for insurance? Yep. Okay. For this experiment, we'll compare that $33,000 to what the Gilberts might pay under Medicare for All. Instead of premiums, copays, and deductibles, the Gilberts would likely see a personal tax increase. And Bonnie's employer would have a new payroll tax. How high? That's the key. We consulted health care finance experts and settled on three possible Medicare for All tax rates. Our low end is 11.5%. It's the combined income and payroll tax option from Vermont Senator Bernie Sanders, one of several ways he might fund Medicare for All. I opened the calculator app on my phone. Okay, so now I need your total income. Pre-tax income? Yep. The Gilberts together earn more than $150,000. I multiply their income by 11.5% and show the Gilberts my screen. If it's Bernie at 11.5, you're fairly well under 33. Together with Bonnie's employer, the Gilberts would save more than $5,000 off their $33,000 total in health care spending. But the Gilberts have some questions about that $5,000 plus in savings. That number could mean that we pay less if the employer pays the same. It could mean that we pay more if the employer pays less. So it depends how that's split, Mm -hmm. how that ratio is split. Between employers and employees. That question lingers as I multiply the Gilberts' income by 15%, the middle tax rate we're using for this experiment. 15% assumes the U.S. would cut health care spending under Medicare for All, but not save as much as Sanders and other supporters suggest. The Gilberts, who are not shy, stare at my phone screen. Yes, that's gone up. Yeah. Up by 10%. About 10% above what the Gilberts and Bonnie's employer already pay for health insurance, trips to the ER, prescriptions, and therapy. This is a lot of money. That's That's very high. So the middle range situation is is of no help to us, really, is the bottom line. (laughs) And finally, I multiply the Gilbert's income by 18%. That's the current portion of the U.S. economy spent on health care. Some economists predict health care spending would rise under Medicare for All and require an even higher tax rate because Americans would use more health care if it's free. But there's a lot of disagreement about how much Medicare for All might cost. That's why we compared a range of tax rates. The Gilberts say there's no point in talking about 18%. I mean, that's almost a a fifth of your income. But you know what this all says to me? It says to me how ridiculously expensive our health care is in this country. And so that even when you bring in these different systems, you can't bring down our costs without going to what we're being charged for things. That is my takeaway.
Paying hospitals and drug makers less would be part of a heated debate if there is serious consideration of Medicare for all. We don't have the answer. We're just very (laughs) nervous. (laughs) We conducted the same experiment with three other individuals and families. You can see all of their stories on WBUR.org. Two low- to moderate-income households saved money at all three tax rates. Another higher-income couple did not. It's important to note that there are many other pressing Medicare for All issues this cost comparison does not address, like what would be covered, how long you might have to wait for care, and job assistance for all the billing and private insurance employees who would be out of work. Comparing your own health care spending is just one way to wrestle with what Medicare for All might mean for you. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Martha Biebinger. Coming up, hand-to-hand politics in New Hampshire and the story of, well, nobody. It's next. Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the John Merck Fund, supporting the New England News Collaborative and its coverage of climate and clean energy. One thing that's distinguished New Hampshire from every other place that would-be presidents seek votes is the sustained proximity between candidate and voter. NHPR's Josh Rogers takes a look at the strategies the 2020 candidates and voters are using to navigate those personal, up-close interactions. It's a recent Friday morning, and an audience of business people are lining up for photos with the presidential candidate, Steve Bullock, before the Montana governor had even spoken. One, two, three. Thank you very much. Ready? One, two, three. Thank you. Bullock, who chairs the National Governors Association, appeared at ease when it came time to grip and grin. Lots of eye contact, a firm handshake, the occasional clap on the back, Bullock gets close, but not too close, and with his cowboy boots and laconic small talk... Uh, you're missing the snowstorm. I know. How about that? Well, I left yesterday and there was snow. Oh. So. Bullock worked his image as a Western state politician without overdoing it. Thank you. I much rather would have gone out to Montana to see it. It's not a bad spot, although you guys have real beauty here as well. This is what New Hampshire offers voters and candidates alike, face-to-face interaction, the chance for small talk, and everyone, candidate and voter, gets a chance to feel improved by the experience. And every candidate has their own set of techniques for executing the transaction. I've learned how to do everything in New Hampshire. When Minnesota Senator Amy Klobuchar visited last week, she name-dropped people. Two of my best friends in the U.S. Senate, Jeannie Shaheen and Maggie Hassan. Places. I haven't been to Max Apples yet. <laughs> there we go. But I eat stony filled yogurt, so there you go. Even pronunciations. I uh, let's see. I can say everything right: Concord, Winnipesaukee, <laughs> Berlin. What? I said Berlin. Voters here will tell you they want candidates to show they're trying to connect, but defining what that even means is a challenge. This is not. In the, this is not in the cognitive part of your brain. This is in a different part. This is somewhere in your limbic system. You know, it's uh, where these, these sort of relationships develop. Shannon Mills, a retired dentist, was among the voters who filled a Concord coffee shop to see Klobuchar. 
He thinks getting as close as possible to candidates, he's seen five so far this year, is important. In 2008, I had a lot of questions about Barack Obama. But when I heard him speak in person, I just had a very, very different experience. You know, so I was trying to figure out, well, do I want to support this guy? And I ended up supporting him right down the line. That changed my mind, seeing him in person. Mills believes the conversion experiences voters can have when they get close enough to a candidate to connect go beyond logic. But that's not to say the conversions aren't induced by the practice moves of a politician. Marilyn Hoffman lives in Londonderry and is a regular at Democratic campaign events. She thinks candidates would be wise to see New Hampshire as a place to hone their skills or else. You know, I remember John Kerry would go on for 45 minutes and, you know, they finally got him down to 20 or something, you know. But they learn their chops here, really. And to be a good president, you have to successfully communicate with ordinary people, not just donors. And lessons candidates can learn here are on display right now. When Bernie Sanders won the New Hampshire primary four years ago, the Vermont senator mostly gave speeches. This year, he's added events where he walks around the room interacting with voters more closely, almost like a daytime talk show host. Richard says we're moving toward an oligarchy. What do people think about that? Is that true? All right. What are the, what are the implications what does it mean for American society that we're moving toward or maybe are in an oligarchy? Yes, ma'am. Stand up, please. Give us your name. Newer candidates to the New Hampshire campaign trail and the intimacy with voters it affords are also learning, occasionally in real time. Here's New Jersey Senator Cory Booker picking up a lesson about oversharing during a visit to St. Anselm College. Right? Yes, yeah. yes. So Mike, what's my excuse for having right. a serious dad bod uh, <laughs> as a vegan? <laughs> So my question is about... Kevin's uh, like, enough, my question. (laughs) My question is regarding China. I just wanted to get your current... Candidates and voters here will have hundreds more face-to-face interactions between now and primary day. For people who make seeing candidates up close a priority, people like Donna Moore and a teacher from Hooksit, these interactions boil down to a basic proposition. For me, I just try to find somebody who doesn't look like they're BSing the whole thing. And that's a test for candidate and voter alike. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Josh Rogers. Even with a big field of candidates, if you ask some voters about what candidate they like, their answer is nobody. And in New Hampshire next year, nobody is actually a candidate. James Pindle of the Boston Globe is back to talk about him. His name is Rich Paul, but I mean, I'm sorry, his name was Rich Paul. Uh, you know, he's a he's a quirky guy. He's a really fun guy. He's a lives in what I would call a libertarian flop house. Rich Paul legally changed his name to Nobody and ran for mayor of Keene, New Hampshire this fall. He got 47 votes and did not move past the primary. The inspiration for his name change was a sign. Outside of this libertarian flophouse, that's why I bring it up, there was a sign uh, that was like, uh, you know, vote for nobody because nobody cares about you, nobody, whatever. He thought that was funny, but also a very negative message. You should vote. So he's like, well, what if I change my name to nobody? And then I try to make it a nobody cares about you more <laughs> sort of thing. <laughs> um, the Libertarian Party is not a recognized party in, in the state of New Hampshire. Uh, they have not had enough electoral success to be one. So he's going to run within the Republican Party to challenge incumbent Governor Chris Sununu. He probably will get more than 47 votes. 
may not get more as a percentage of the votes when that happens next September. It's amazing. So only 47 votes uh, as he runs for mayor of Keene, New Hampshire, but he's going to he's going to try to take this all the way to the state house, huh? Yeah, he says uh, the way he puts it, uh, the the voters of Keene have clearly spoken. They do not want me to be mayor, but they may want me to be governor. Yeah, I asked him, did you talk to your parents about this? He's he's an older man. He said, yes, as, as they uh, they know I'm weird. Uh, they weren't surprised if any of their kids was going to do this, it would be me. And they also know that by the time I die, my name will probably be Rich Polligan. James Pendle, that's his real name. Uh, he's uh, a reporter for the Boston Globe who covers politics all around New England. James, thanks so much for joining us. I really appreciate it. It was a lot of fun. And it's been fun getting to explore New England with you. This is my final week hosting next. My next project will keep me right in this region and periodically on this show, digging into the kinds of questions we talked about today leading up to the election. You can find our show wherever you get your podcasts. Just search for Next New England. Next is produced by Morgan Springer. You can join her for next week's program. Our digital producer is Carlos Mejia. The executive producer is Katie Talarski. We had help this week from Matt Lissette and Peter Engish. Music this week is by Todd Merrill and Goodnight Blue Moon. I'm John Dankosky. The New England News Collaborative is powered by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, Connecticut Public Radio, Vermont Public Radio, New Hampshire Public Radio, Maine Public Radio, New England Public Radio, WBUR, WSHU, and The Public's Radio.